Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. In this edition, we're going to have three different questions from the audience, and then we're going to finish it off with some wise words from Bill Brooks. He's going to talk about NFPA 855. The first question is regarding latitude's effect on the solar resource. The question has to do with, is the sunlight the same at every latitude? Hmm. Well, we're going to answer that in a second. I'm just so tempted to tell it to you now, but we'll save it for in a minute. And then the next question has to do with cheap electricity and how does it work out to get solar in a place with cheap electricity where there's all these lucky people to have expensive electricity. Yeah, you'll know what I'm talking about in a few minutes. And then question three has to do with equalization. No, it's not that state board of equalization. It's battery equalization and how we do that with certain types of batteries, lead acid. And last but not least, we're going to have some wise words from Bill Brooks. He's going to talk about NFPA 855, the standard for energy storage systems. To have fun and learn more about solar and storage, go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com. On with the show. Okay, and the first question comes from Jerry Adams. He's a guy that took one of my classes in the last year. And Jerry says, I found it really interesting that Athens, Greece, and San Francisco, California, both have 38 degree latitudes and have the same sun paths. Does this mean that those locations experience roughly the same amount of sunlight per year? Let's answer that question, Jerry. And one more thing that's kind of interesting too is the 38th parallel. Have you heard of that? That's over there by Kim Jong-un and that separates North and South Korea. That's my favorite vacation spot. Uh Uh-huh. As far as is the weather going to be the same, the answer is kind of, sort of, but not really. And that's because even though you have the same latitude, you have this thing called weather. For instance, since we're talking about 38 degrees latitude, we can talk about San Francisco. We can talk about Sacramento. And we can talk about Washington, D.C., All those places have different weather, especially San Francisco. San Francisco itself probably has weather that's just as different as Sacramento versus Washington, D.C. because of how the fog rolls in there. And I know because I sail in and out of that Golden Gate Bridge, and it's just crazy. Sometimes the weather's different by going 100 feet. In fact, I remember seeing some sunpath charts, and they had one time, I think it was, you go across the street, and it's like you get 20% more solar radiation from the year just from crossing the street. Hey, they had to draw the line somewhere. Yes, that's the difference. It has to do with weather. However, you know, it's always going to be nicer as you go further south and worse as you go further north to a certain degree because you go to the North Pole or the South Pole and yeah, the sun doesn't get that high there. You know, if you were on the North Pole or the South Pole, the highest the sun would ever get in the sky is a tilt of the earth, which is 23 and a half degrees. That's not very high for summer solstice especially when you're comparing it to the DMZ. That stands for demilitarized zone. So yeah, it has to do with the atmosphere and moisture. A lot of it has to do with water, but then you can even get to some places where the pollution is so bad. We don't want to cap on China, but it can get really bad in some places. Actually, the worst pollution I ever saw was Mongolia. That's outer Mongolia on winter solstice. It was like 40 below. And they had this coal smoke that just sat there. I guess you call that an inversion layer. And it was the most disgusting thing ever. And it was darn freezing. We went snow skiing and my eyeballs almost cracked. But you know, if you went to a place with no atmosphere like the moon, 
then you could pretty much say the equator is going to have more sunlight than the north or the south pole to a certain degree. But hey, let's think about that though. Other thing about Earth too is that atmosphere filters out the sun. So at sunrise and sunset, it's not so bright. However, on the moon, sunrise and sunset, it is really bright. So you know what? I take that back. What they want to do is put solar on the north or the south pole of the moon. And then if they can just keep turning it, they can almost get constant sun on certain places, maybe like the, a mountain on the north or the south pole, or I should say a higher elevation place. And yep, we're talking lunar solar power. So anyway, I think we answered that question. The sun is not going to be the same at every latitude just because of latitude. Another example of that too would be the equator. If you look at the best places in the world for solar, you would think it would be the equator, right? But that's not right because the equator has lots of moisture in the air and humidity and things like that. So you go a ways away from the equator and then you can see the spots that have the best solar radiation. Those are places like the Sahara Desert, parts of Australia, and a few other places. They are really good for solar. And now for our next question. Now this question comes from Carabo, who's in Helena, Montana. And Carabo says, I get my electricity for about six or seven cents per kilowatt hour currently. It's crazy cheap right now, but I wonder how long it can last considering the events of COVID. We've seen building prices increase from 100 to 300% in some areas. How significantly can the cost of solar be affected by COVID-19? Oh, great. It's a COVID question, and I don't have to get into conspiracy theories and take sides to answer this one. So, yeah, let's do this question. So, Carabo, that is some pretty steep inflation for building prices you have there. But your electricity is pretty darn cheap. It's got to be somehow subsidized by one way or another because it's not uncommon for people to be paying five times as much for electricity. And you know, one thing about energy prices is they matter more than the solar radiation. It's not like you're going to ever have five times as much solar radiation. I mean, sometimes you go from a terrible place to the best place in the world. You might get like a 50% increase, but not like a five-fold increase. And did you know, just for instance, that a five-fold increase is a 400% increase? Because let's just say if you took 10 cents and you turned it into 20 that's a two-fold increase, but that's a 100% increase. So a five-fold increase is a 400% increase. I bet everybody didn't know that, but I'm sure you did. Because every Carabo I've ever met has been a super smart person. One thing about solar is it does have the trend of going down. I mean, the price is going down. It's getting towards the price of dirt. I mean, it's getting cheap, especially compared to how expensive it used to be and the price of dirt going up. And there are some pieces in the system that have gone up in price, like silicon and things like that, but it has not seriously affected the system price. You know, being in the United States, the biggest thing affecting the price right now, pretty much, are the tariffs that people pay on international modules. And that's just a controversy that try not to get too involved with, but hey, we have tariffs because we're having a trade war. We're gonna win that war. But you know what? You're in Montana, electricity's cheap, and maybe the best way to sell solar there is to talk about being sustainable and independent from the utility. Because if you're talking about something like seven cents a kilowatt hour, it's gonna have a long payback period, except, you know what? It's still gonna have a payback period. So it's still gonna pay for itself, but it's not gonna be this great profit center where you can just turn your money over like crazy, like you can in a lot of other states. And hopefully the price of electricity goes up there and everywhere. That's right, we're in the business of selling electricity, so we want electricity to be expensive, which also causes people to conserve energy, causes people to buy more solar systems, and it's just good for everybody all around. And one of the things that I've noticed 
throughout the last decade and a half is you'll see places where they'll have a good incentive such as a rebate and then all of a sudden there's a boom in this place so you started off with around 2006 or 2008 they had the California Solar Initiative and California was taking off and then New Jersey was taking off. Ontario, Canada was taking off. Even Pennsylvania took off for a little bit. And a lot recently, I've been seeing a lot of stuff going on in the Midwest. Florida's taken off. It just takes off in different places a lot of times just because of policy and the price of solar going down. So even without policy, you know, at seven cents a kilowatt hour, we'll get there. I mean, putting a utility scale solar farm can sell electricity at two cents a kilowatt hour in some places. So let's say that your sun isn't as good, so we'll call it three, but still it can work. And I know there's a lot of people that are doing solar in Montana. I've taught a number of classes there. There's even a racking company that makes some pretty cool racks from Montana. So to tie it up, cheap electricity makes solar tough, it makes anything tough makes coal tough. Actually, it probably makes coal tougher than solar these days because solar is the cheapest electricity in the world right now. And that's only going to change to the benefit of solar because when you have solar, you mass produce equipment to capture more and the price goes down. When you have limited resources like fossil fuels and uranium and things like that, it gets harder and harder to find those things and then the price goes up. So we've hit grid parity, folks. In fact, we've passed it. Solar is cheaper than coal, cheaper than natural gas, barely cheaper than wind, but hey, they're our friends. And now energy storage, that's the key because renewable energy is intermittent because its sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. So we're using things like energy storage to counteract that. And with all the electric vehicles, putting energy storage on the floorboard, we're getting the price of lithium ion batteries going down. Okay, on to the next question. This question comes from Vince Haverty. The question is, I have never heard of equalization for batteries. How often does this usually need to be done for maintenance and what does it accomplish? Equalization of batteries. That's something that NABSEP loves to put on their tests or at least has loved to put on their tests very often. And no, this has nothing to do with the state board of equalization, whatever that is, but I voted on it before. We're talking about equalizing lead acid batteries for the most part. And what an equalization is, let's first talk about what kind of batteries you can equalize and what kind you can't. So you can pretty much only equalize batteries that are flooded lead acid batteries that have the caps that you can take off and that you can add distilled water to. Occasionally, you might find some maintenance-free lead acid battery where you can't add distilled water to it and the manufacturer might tell you that you can do equalization but I'd be I'd double check that because that's kind of unusual because for the most part equalizing batteries is something that you have to be able to add distilled water to and one more thing too is there are a lot of similarities between NICAD batteries and lead acid batteries so whenever I say something about a lead acid battery Oftentimes, that could mean NICAD too, but most people aren't using NICAD batteries because they have cadmium in them. They're kind of toxic, but hey, lead's toxic too. And you might just see those cadmium batteries used by telecoms, cell towers, things like that. Anyway, so the kind of people that you might see equalizing lead acid batteries are old timer hippies living in the hills that have these old PV systems that are like 12 and 24, and if they're lucky, even 48 volts with huge big cables and really old equipment. I was recently up in Haines, Alaska, and I saw some guy that had a 12 volt system that was 
kind of big. And he had lead-acid batteries that he made last for 20 years, and they were still going. He would always keep them between 90 and 100% state of charge. Well, he still does live in a windy place, and he's got solar, generators, and he just loves his batteries. He talks to them. He has a personal relationship with his batteries. And of course, he equalizes his batteries, and he waters his batteries, and he knows that some cells are different than other cells. Some cells take more water than other cells. And one reason why you might have that kind of a situation, why one cell might lose water faster than the other cells, is because one cell might be hotter than the other cells. And one reason why one cell might be hotter than the other cells is you might have a bad connection. That's right, the cable is attached to the battery a little loosely or a little corrosion in there, and that makes some heat, and that makes that battery acid, which actually mostly water, just like a human, it makes it disappear. That's right, you're mostly water. Most of your atoms are hydrogen, just like the sun, if we could just figure out how to do fusion. Okay, back to business. One thing that you definitely do not do is overcharge lithium ion batteries. Lead acid batteries love to even be fully charged. Lithium ion batteries do not love to be fully charged. That's why I leave my car charged at 80%. Once in a while when I have free charging, I'll go up to 90. If I was gonna go on a super long road trip, I might think about going up to 100, but still, I might go up to 90 and save my battery, make it last forever. Except I do have a warranty. Maybe I should make my battery die before the warranty, huh? Uh-oh, I hope Elon's not listening to me. Lithium ion batteries are very sensitive and they do not like being overcharged and that could even cause a thermal event, also known as venting with flame, also known as the word that we do not like to say, fire. That's why lithium ion batteries have to have battery management systems, and they always do, and they're pretty safe. I mean, a whole lot safer than a tank of gas. Kaboom, I love those movies. The question now is why do we do equalization on lead acid batteries? Two reasons, actually. One of the reasons is because these lead acid batteries, they're sitting there, they're not bouncing around in our cars, going over potholes. And they get this thing that the Grand Canyon gets. It's called stratification. It gets layers. And so you get the heavier, more acidic things sinking to the bottom of the battery, the lighter, more water-like things going to the top of the battery, and it gets stratified. When you do equalization, what it does is once the battery gets fully charged and can't charge anymore, it starts splitting water molecules also known as electrolysis. And that's how you make hydrogen, actually, but we call it an electrolyzer. If you stick a positive and a negative into water, like you do with the battery terminals, you got a positive and a negative, and you overcharge it, the negative is where the hydrogen comes off, and the positive is where the oxygen comes off, you know, like as in H2O getting split up. And that brings us to another thing, is because this H2O is getting split up and we're getting hydrogen and oxygen, those are some very volatile partners. Reminds me of me and my ex-girlfriend. Because kaboom, it'll just take off like crazy. In fact, you know the space shuttle? You know that big tank that they would bring up with the space shuttle? That was hydrogen and oxygen. The same thing you get from equalizing batteries. So it could be dangerous, but people that have batteries know about that and they just keep a certain amount of airflow in there. So they know when they're equalizing their batteries that they open everything up so it doesn't get overly concentrated. And you always just wanna have a little ventilation around your batteries in case something accidentally got equalized, overcharged, something broke, you know, things happen once in a while. 
So those bubbles, those hydrogen and oxygen bubbles, they stir up the battery, they get rid of stratification, and one more thing. There's this other thing called lead sulfate crystals. With a lead acid battery, it's very healthy to be charged to 100% every day if possible. And if you're having a bad winter, you know, not a lot of sunshine, and you're going between 80 and 70 or 80 and 50 all week long, and you don't get to that 100%, you start getting crystals building up on those plates. And that's not a good thing because it's kind of blocking activity happening. You know, that activity of the battery working. You don't want to have crystals over your lead plates. So then those bubbles, as they're stirring, they're scraping and they scrape the lead sulfate crystals off the lead plates, or at least that's what they say. So that's it. Those are the two things that equalization takes care of, stratification and lead sulfate crystal scraping. It's a controlled overcharge. Let's say you had a 48 volt battery bank, you're most likely doing equalization at over 60 volts. And now somebody might say, hmm, maybe I can capture that hydrogen and put that on a fuel cell. But you know what? You might as well just get an electrolyzer. And the other problem with making hydrogen fuel cell electricity from solar energy is when you go from electricity to hydrogen and then back to electricity, that's about 35% efficient. That means you're losing 65% of your energy of changing things back and forth. That's a problem. So you might as well just stick with batteries for now. But hydrogen is pretty cool. It is most of the universe after all. It's most of you, most of me, you know, stars and stuff. Okay, thank you for that one, Vince. We are now equalized. And now we're going to hear it from Bill Brooks, who helps write all kinds of NFPA standards, who is key in helping with writing all kinds of codes and standards, especially the NEC, but also Bill is involved with all things NFPA, such as NFPA 855. And this is a standard for stationary energy storage systems. It's not adopted by any state. It's a brand new standard. When would you say people would be using this, Bill? 855 can be adopted by municipalities and things like that and fire services. But it's mainly, I guess the most important part about 855 is that it's used a lot in forming and helping to write the building codes. And so there is a section in 855 on one and two family dwellings and some of that language has made it into the residential code we actually had to modify it and improve it and because 855 has just gone through its first edition now in its second edition it's used a lot for the building code so that's where we see it officially adopted but a municipality or a fire service could require certain projects to follow 855 to the letter i just don't see that happening a lot it's more finding its way into the codes so they're just kind of using this as like a template or like a document to write other codes with? Yeah, and so. that's because the I-codes, the International Building Code, International Fire Code, and International Residential Code are documents that are universally applied throughout the United States. That's a pretty big battle to fight. The better way to do it is just to simply get language from these standards into those codes. Okay. So that kind of reminds me of the IEC, which is the International Electrotechnical Commission. And it's kind of evolved out of like a European standard, but they don't really use it to design systems, but they use it to write codes. And it even talks about how in the front of the NEC, if you read it, it says that they try to go by the philosophy of the IEC. So let's just read that reference right out of the NEC. NEC Article 90 
introduction 90.1c relation to other international standards and it says the requirements in this code address the fundamental principles of protection for safety contained in section 131 of international electrotechnical commission standard 60364-1 electrical installations of buildings then there's even an informational note, and that informational note says that IEC 60364-1, Section 131, contains fundamental principles of protection for safety that encompass protection against electrical shock, protection against thermal effects, protection against overcurrent, protection against fault currents, and protection against overvoltage. All of these potential hazards are addressed by the requirements in this code. And you know what? I'm going to even read some of the blue writing that we have here. This is writing that's just for informational purposes, sort of like an informational note, and it's only in the handbook. It's not in the NEC codebook. And it says, in addition to being an essential part of the safety systems of the Americas and the most widely adopted code for the built environment in the United States, the NEC is also adopted and used extensively in many other countries. The NEC is compatible with international safety principles and installations meeting the requirements of the NEC are also in compliance with the fundamental principles outlined in IEC 60364-1 Electrical Installations of Buildings, Section 131. Countries that do not have formalized rules for electrical installations can adopt the NEC and be fully compatible with the safety principles of IEC 60364-1, Section 131. So pretty much the difference between a code and a standard is you can use a standard to help you come up with ideas to write the code. And it's nice when we harmonize all these different codes in all these different places around the world with the IEC so we're not too far apart. And there's some things that we cover in the NEC that are just pretty much nature, universal. Like I bet you aliens in the Andromeda galaxy also bond neutral to ground in one single point. That's called a single point of system grounding and it just makes a lot of sense. I wonder if they also have three phase power and split phase power over there in Andromeda galaxy. You might have to wait a while though to find out because it's going to take a long time before Andromeda gets here to Milky Way, but it will happen. And that also just kind of goes to show you about NFPA 855. It's not something that's required by any state. It's not adopted like the NEC. Some state could adopt it. And also some state could say, we're not using the NEC anymore. I've never heard of that happening. And most states use the International Fire Code. That's the IFC. But some states use NFPA 1, which is a different fire code. There's actually competing fire codes. Can you believe that? You have these different standards. These standards could be good ideas. And people all around the world use the NEC. I like that last sentence that they put here too. Countries that do not have formalized rules for electrical installations can adopt the NEC and be fully compatible with the safety principles of IEC 60364-1 section 131. That sounds to me like these NEC people are trying to sell NECs. <laughs> if more people buy the NEC, they can sell more books. Unfortunately, as of the 2020 NEC, you can't get it in PDF. And that's why I'm reading this from the 2017 NEC because it's the same. They haven't changed this part of the NEC and it's too much of a pain to have to log in every time and enter a password. Come on, NFPA, please give us the PDF of the NEC. 
Thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about solar, energy storage, everything else, go to solarsean.com. <laughs>